0: Hello, and welcome to the second series of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. Over the next six episodes, we'll be talking to some of the UK's leading creatives about, amongst other things, plastic, metal, textiles and willow. But first of all, we'll meet Kate Malone to talk clay. And please remember, if you enjoy what you hear, feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also pledge on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. I hope you enjoy. Today, I'm in the London studio of a ceramicist like no other. Kate Malone has been at the top of her game for more than 30 years, developing an unmistakable aesthetic often inspired by nature and in the process pioneering glazed techniques. She's worked on any number of scales, from batch production pieces made in her studio to creating facades for buildings. She's also had shows at places like the Geoffrey Museum and Watson Manor, while her pieces have been collected extensively, both privately and by public organisations. But she's arguably best known for her time spent as a TV judge on the Great Pottery Throwdown. Kate, thanks <laughs> well very done. much for doing this.
1: <laughs> very nice uh, little beginning as well, thank you. Oh, that's
0: my pleasure, that's my pleasure. <laughs> um, I mean, what we generally do on this podcast is kind of talk about uh, where and how you work to, to begin with. Um, So can we talk about the environment we found ourselves in today? You're in East London, and this is kind of this extraordinary... uh, There seems to be no division between your work and your your home life.
1: Yeah, I think... Well, my daughter and my husband would (laughs) probably complain about that. But essentially, really... Since 1988 or 9, yes, we've lived and worked on the same piece of land or in the same building, and essentially now we're in quite a new building. My husband is a builder, so we've really worked as a team together, him providing studios and home for us to live in, and I'm making all the time. He's that sort of silent partner. But he built this timber-framed little house, which is like a ship out of French green oak, himself Mm. teaching my nephew... Uh, carpentry at the same time Hmm. and every single bit of this house is done by Graham except for the electrics. Interesting. And so the staircase, the windows, the frames.
0: So when you moved in here in 89? Well we
1: bought this decades ago as a furniture storage warehouse, an ugly warehouse right in the middle of Hackney and Dalston, came up for auction and we got planning permission on proviso that we didn't take any of the walls down. So that's why it's quite dark downstairs. So we actually built a building inside the existing building. Okay. And uh, Graham is a craftsman, a great craftsman. The materials around you, this bare concrete board, which is supposed to be insulation behind you, that looks very beautiful. And uh, all the oak, um, the green oak, is just sort of slightly splitting and moving and twisting. You know, we're noticing it move and shift and... There's a zinc roof and it's just this little unit, tiny, you know, right in London, two bedrooms, two tiny bathrooms. So my daughter has a room and Graham and I have a room, but we also live in Kent and then a tiny studio downstairs. And my team, sometimes six or eight of us are in that little room, which is five and a half metres by five and a half metres in essence with a kiln in it. And we all work around this bench. It's just marvellous really that we manage to sort of symbiotically work. There's three of them working away as we chat now.
0: And you spill out into the kitchen downstairs. Sometimes as
1: well. meetings do. Mm. But really I try and draw the line. There's a long corridor, you might have noticed. Mm. It's sort of but that's really drawing the line but in the health and safety side of things. And we have a fabulous little air cube that goes on at night that cleans the air. Right. And all sorts of so we're very I'm qu- I'm quite strict. For the benefit of my family, really. If they weren't here, I'm sure I'd have spilled out into the rest of the ground floor. But packing and things go on by the dining room table. Cook, I can be cooking or Graham or my daughter can be cooking and I'll be working in the studio. So it's a lovely fusion, actually. Yeah. It really is an idyll in my eyes.
0: Because you also have this... You li- I mean, you also mentioned you live in Kent. Um Do you work there as well, or how do you divide your time? Well, it's
1: all very new, really, because in 86 Mm. we bought this land in Hackney very cheaply, a very undesirable area, and over these last 30 years we've sort of moved from a house to the land at the back and then to some land at the side, and it's really only the last year and a half that my husband said, 30 years in London, not good enough, (laughs) I need a garden. And so we've sold one of the buildings to a group of potters, a a family who are renting it to a group of potters. So right. the legacy of the land use lives on. Um, and um, so we're setting up the studio, big studios. For the first time in my life, I've got space. You know, I've been in central London and every single square inch and every square foot has been stuffed with these great trolleys with wheels and... I could only glaze or make. I could never really do the same actions at the same time. And so now I've got a barn the size of a small church. I've got studios. And I I literally, the other day, I was doing some clay recycling in the barn and I started shouting because my team came running to say, What's the matter? I was like, I can't believe it. I've got so much space. (laughs) I've got space. You know, so we did our time.
0: (laughs) Do your team follow you? To so Kent, yeah, when you are working Rayford, have... so
1: this is about community actually right so in a way i've been part of this community in hackney on this cobbled muse. i've stopped over development you know the block at the end wants to be eight stories high and Judith Cameron and I, who's a sculptor, we stopped it being it's five stories high. Right. And people have wanted to build all around. And this is a unique muse which had a metal spinner, a Rolls-Royce restorer. There's a leather dealer. There was the biggest buckle supplier in Hackney that's moved. But the leather's still here and there's a craft leather workshop here. So this is a very rare thing that Hackney used to be stuffed with makers. Mm. And so I very much believe in community, that community being my family first. And then my team and then my professional community, my Glaze academic community, the architect, you know, it's all about communities and trying to be part of that. And so the team, for instance, of whom there are 11 wow, and they only work two days a week each, really. OK. I never thought I ever wanted all of somebody who had the skills that I demand. And so they all have their own studios and it's a sort of symbiotic thing. Sometimes when they haven't got any money at all, they say, can they have full time? Other times they're really busy and they don't want to come at all. So it's a flexing, moving cloud of Mm. help, actually. Mm. And because most of them I've been working with, well, Josh is new. He's an intern. Six months he's been here. Right back to sort of Anna and Ricky have been around for 12 years on and off coming and going. And
0: where do you find them? Do they come to you? Do you scout them? No,
1: I never scout them at all. Sometimes it's serendipity. For instance, my workshop manager, Helen Evans, who's now set up in Tobago, she gave in her notice after eight years. And the same week, Mariah, who's downstairs, wrote to me from Kiln Rooms and said, you know, was there an availability? And although I have constant letters of inquiry, it's just about timing sometimes. So I'm very much a believer in sort of fate. So this, you know, this email came in from Mariah said, come in, you know. And so then she shadowed Helen for three or four months to learn the job of glaze. You know, she runs the glaze mixing. And so it's a very sort of moving, growing, fluxing thing, which sometimes is really, I'm often writing same, what days are you, in? when are you going to be here? <laughs> and often I go away for, you know, a month at a time. And, I, and they all, I guarantee them work. I'll never say there's no work for them. I've always felt that I'll never give them an insecure base. And so I have to guarantee them work. So in a way, a lot of the work has evolved because they're there. So there's a lot of intricate work that I wouldn't do if they weren't there. Mm. So it's a very fascinating thing, actually. Mm. You know, Last week, uh, Anna came and she said, oh, I need, to, you know, I want seven days work. I want to work all through the weekend. I want to sort of earn a nice lump of money. So I had to think about what she was going to do. And So now this week, this pot's nearly finished. I wouldn't have dreamt would exist because yeah. I had to sort of think on my toes and so in a way it's a sort of design challenge actually, you know, to keep them busy it's very interesting. Is that, I was going to say,
0: is that a pressure?
1: It is a pressure, yeah, but I don't mind the pressure at all, mm. you know I don't mind it at all, I find it very exciting much like doing public artworks when an architect will come with their idea of something and I have to interpret and work with them as mm. part of a team mm. so yeah, it is um, stressful, no, I don't think it is maybe slightly
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can, I, can we talk about your locale and being in the city? Because it's always intrigued me that your work is kind of inspired generally, often, not entirely, but generally by nature. And yet you've always located, or for the longest time, located yourself slap bang in the heart of, yeah, you know, what is, let's face it, quite a gritty part of London. Yeah. How does that work?
1: Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, my dad said when I was tiny, Before I could hardly walk, he'd see me in the garden sort of sitting and looking at flowers very closely, sort of pulling them apart, I suppose. I don't know, but just look. He saw me studying nature. He said he remembers that, although I don't necessarily remember it. And I think I've always loved nature. We travel a lot. So although we've been in the city for 30 years, Mm. for two months of every year, We've travelled all around the world, backpacked, you know, from the start. 30 years ago, we were travelling mm. in India. So there is that, where you absorb nature. And I think the city needs nature. I like to please people. I always like to please people. So in a way, I'm sort of... And in New York, my work's quite successful. And I think it's, that's even more of a concrete Which is quite city. interesting,
0: because you wouldn't necessarily expect that, would you?
1: You wouldn't, but it's bringing nature to their homes, right? See. I think the spirit of nature, or the spirit of the earth, which is my objective, is there. Um, and But I have lived away. So when our daughter, Scarlett, who's now 22, yeah. was four, my husband said, Hackney air is not good enough. And so we did actually keep the London building and go and buy a house in the south of France. And Scarlett went to school in the local village, school in the medieval Provencal village. And I had a studio in a raw cave there. Mm. And in fact, funnily enough, when I got there, All the fancier things that I make here didn't seem relevant at all. And I got made much more simple pieces.
0: Well, that's interesting. I was going to ask whether the the move to Kent, do you expect that to change your work? Often when people change the well, yes. size of their studios, it can yes. affect what they, what they can do.
1: Yes. I mean, up till now, although I'm known often for making big pots that weigh about a third of a ton, yeah. I could only ever make one at a time yeah. or two maximum, otherwise we were just literally shuffling and squeezing around these delicate pots. But now I'm going to be able to make four in a row if I want to mm. or, you know, just actually just store and move. So I think that will help. I think that'll change things. But we've also got a beautiful garden. We've got two acres of garden. Um, It's been gardened by four generations of women by this funny pie and sausage making family called the Baxters. They've had it and the garden's beautiful. So I can feel kind of really English flowers or something coming through. But at the same time, I don't know, because the thing is, I try and respond to the moment and not really think too much mm. ahead. Mm. I'm quite naive like that, really. Mm. Hence taking on these giant jobs that nobody really would have <laughs> taken on had they realised what was involved. Well,
0: can, can we talk, because as I was researching this and I was reading various books on you and, and pieces that well, I've written in the past and others, um, it kind of struck me that, that your, your work is quite hard to categorise, Kate. I mean, if you look at English ceramics, there's a kind of leachian school of British pottery, the classic brown pot. And then you have people like Alison Britton, Carol McNichol, who kind of chafed against that, if you like. Mm. Um, Edmund Duval, who we had in our first series of, mm. of this particular podcast, you know, was legion and then very vocally and, and quite dramatically decided to step away from that. I mean, you seem to sit in your own world. Do you think that's that's a fair comment?
1: Yeah, I think that's very interesting because I love brown pots. I just bought a I just bought a, a McCasson on the internet, a little pot, yeah. and I collect Brampton pots, and I adore, I sort of really empathise with the pure, earthy nature of the potter. I think potters always provide a service, again, to community, in that they made flower pots and bread pansions and cups and bowls and things like that. Nowadays, the modern potter doesn't... They're not needed to provide that service, mm. and so the public art and things that I do sort of fulfil that as a potter. But um, really, I just think I've I've always just... I always thought when I left the Royal College in 1986, I thought I'll do what I want to do and what's me. And if it doesn't work, then I'll probably have to change and sort of make... I always thought everybody needs a cereal bowl, a nice Mm. bowl. You know, I've never Mm. had to do that. But um, I don't know. I I I I think if you look at the history of ceramics worldwide, I think I fit in a timeline quite strongly there. I mean, the pumpkins and the gourds... And the artichokes and things like that, you could actually put them in a context and say that they were Chinese 17th century, couldn't you? I mean, you could, say, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you could be, you know, the experts wouldn't be fooled, but yeah, there is that. And I have this thing that people and potters throughout time respond to nature and to clay in the same way. So often you can see a Chinese pumpkin that's totally gorgeous from the 17th, 18th century and put mine next to it and there's this really strong parallel. And then things like the Sevre, of course, recently. Adrian Sassoon's love of Sevre, yeah, and all the people that I meet in his circle have influenced me in that way. And so I suppose I'd like to think I might fit in a, wor- a world timeline rather than a British one, but I think my shapes are all English. Mm. I think the width, if you look at a Staffordshire pot... Like a Minton or a Dalton pot a jug the width, they're almost as if you measure them, they're almost as wide as they are tall, they're very stable, Squat. they're strong, they actually have posture, don't they? They have this sort of British bulldog posture, <laughs> you know? and I think uh, I think definitely from the start, my work had that British form and stability and strength, not by intention, but simply by it happening.
0: Can we talk about your relationship with clay? I mean, this is what the podcast is all about. Mm. And, And when did clay as a material kind of strike you?
1: Well, I do remember using sort of an air clay when I was about four and making a cupcake and being struck by the malleability of the material. And then I think it was secondary school. I was at this fantastic, rather rough, very progressive, secondary, comprehensive school outside Bristol. Right. 1,400 kids. It was, it was rough. They went on strike and they attacked the headmaster in the night. I mean, it was a really raw area. Yeah, yeah. And I loved it there. I was chairman of debates and chairman of social affairs and deputy head girl. You know, I really loved being there. But they had this amazing art department, this whole block. And, in fact, the head of art, who's now in his 90s, who lives in Australia, my pottery teacher's now in his 80s, who lives in Cornwall, I'm in touch with them. And I hadn't... You took it for granted, but we had great wedges of metalwork, woodwork, pottery, sewing, cookery in the timetable, whole afternoons. I remember now looking forward to a Thursday afternoon because I'd have two hours of pottery. And it was all there, and so...
0: So what was it about, It was about
1: touching it. Mm. And it's still now my favourite bit... I tend to, because of my small studios up till now, everything's cyclical, so I'll make for six or eight weeks and then glaze for six weeks and finish and deliver. So there's this cyclical, but the best bit is when the soft clay is right there. It's all about the malleability of that material, really. And and at that stage, it's a total self-indulgent meditation. You know, once the pieces are made and they're drying and they have to be fired and then glazed and then finished, you know, it's then that it becomes the work, you know, which is still very rewarding. Mm. But the most favourite bit I cherish is to just not know what I'm going to make or start a pot. I never really know how it's going to look, in effect. Sort of trust to the process revealing that. Well, that's
0: interesting. You don't draw before you start I working? I do sketches,
1: yes. Yeah. So, for instance, at the moment I'm working on three gourds for a villa in Mallorca and it's got to be based on the Mallorcan flora and fauna. And so I did sketches for them and I said, you have to know that during the process, things might change. Mm. And in fact, I presented each of the three giant gourds that have these plants growing up them to have many plants on each one. But actually during the process, I simplified it to one that had Aleppo pine, one that had home oak and the other that had marigolds. So I paired it right back during the process, but I could never have known that. And I presented it to them at all times, you know, saying that's what I'm, I've changed my mind slightly. It's going, they're going to be more simple than I originally proposed, mm. simply because I don't feel, well, the way I work, other people, obviously people work differently, but I love to remain open. So I might have an idea to make one thing. The ideal is to start five. And so one thing will follow the original sketch quite strongly. Right. The others will be a bit looser and then there'll be two wild cards where I might even just turn them upside down or slice them in half or join them together and produce something that I never would. It's like going to a party and meeting a stranger who will then become your friend. You know, you just don't know. And to me, that's the thing. Hmm. So often when I go to Agent Sassoon's shows where he shows my work so beautifully on the stands, it's like visiting somebody new because I had <laughs> I couldn't have imagined it in the first place. So I'm very fascinated to see my own work when it's being shown, because obviously it's made in the studio and then packed and sent, and there's no really stopping and looking.
0: Can I, can I take you back, because uh, we just jumped forward in, into your... Sorry, into your, yeah. That's fine, that's fine, <laughs> right, that's fine, right, right, right. um, But I'm keen to know, at school you obviously found you had a penchant for, for clay. I, I seem to remember your father was a sports journalist. I think yes, you you're
1: absolutely right.
0: Um, what did your parents make of that? Because I think you're, you're, you've got brothers and they're, they're journalists as well, presumably, yeah. therefore you come from quite a literary family, I'm guessing.
1: Well, sports and literature—I don't know. I think good writing is really important. I think public speaking. My dad was a football commentator on the telly, ah, and so um, for the BBC, no, for ITV for the big match, and then he was the Brian Moore and all that kind of stuff. Yes, I think they were all quite good friends, and uh, but also he was the local TV presenter for Harlech Television in Bristol. He had a little programme once or twice a week, and so I don't think literature—they were just—they're sport fanatic. You know, I only see my dad once or twice a year now, and it has to be arranged around major sports <laughs> events. Literally, it does. Uh, he's adorable. But really, my mum was quite creative. She sewed my dresses. She sort of did. She had lovely home, although we were middle class. All my friends always thought she was so stylish in the way that she dressed and the way that she made the home so lovely. She was really wild. My dad was quite wild. Away an awful lot with sports journalism. And basically, they just let us get on with it. Right. You know, my dad said, what are you doing? I said, I'm thinking going on a BA, you know. Yeah, very good, carry on, you know. And it was in the day where we got a grant and our fees were paid. You know, I had this seven-year art education where I was given £2,000 a year to live, you know, and I didn't come out of it in debt. And I feel so strongly for the students now. It's a very different thing. So I don't know. It was just a different thing then. And my dad just said, as long as you're happy... As long as, you know, you're doing what you want to do, carry on. And that really, much like my the brilliant art department at school that I took for granted, I probably took that for granted. He wasn't at all worried that it might not turn into a profession. That wasn't an issue. Mind you, the sportiness of the family makes me not competitive, but aware of success, mm. if you see what I mean. And my, my big brother always used to say, come on, you're not still at college. You know, when are you going to get a proper job? <laughs> and I used to think, I'm going to show you, you know. So there was that in, in, in my life. So, and I was the middle of two brothers who were very sort of rough and tumble. So I was quite tough and resilient, I suppose, which furnishes you to everything. But my mum was always very fun loving, absolutely mad. You know, if we were going camping to Wales and uh, I had six friends who wanted to come, she'd say, yeah, of course they can come. And she'd go and she was a car dealer. So she'd go she, was and, car dealer. <laughs> she was a car dealer? She was a car dealer. When my parents got divorced, she started dealing in cars. She had a boyfriend who had cars. And so she'd just get a bigger car and we'd all, we'd pile more kids in the car. We'd all go camping and she didn't care where we were all night, you know, because she was off having a good time. So it was very <laughs> free time, free to do the education that I wanted and free to work That way I wanted. You... Went to
0: university polytechnic in Bristol, so you stayed in the yes. in the area. Yes, that was a conscious decision.
1: My stepfather died, and I wanted to stay near my mother. Fair enough. So, um, yeah, that was. Uh, but but Bristol was perfect. Mm. I mean, it had Wally Keeler, Mo Jupp, Roger Turrell, George Rayner, uh, David Robinson. Great tutors, great department. I mean, it was there was no reason to go anywhere really mm. at at all. And mm. L- Bristol, gorgeous. It was during the great music time where the, where Ritbig and Panic and Maximum Joy and the Pop Group, all this whole sort of really fizzy music thing was happening. And I had a boyfriend who was in a sound engineer with all the lots of quite good bands. So we were sort it was very active. So yeah, it was great. There was no reason to go anywhere.
0: I remember you telling me before that Mo was particularly important oh, at that time, yes, is that, is that yes, true?
1: Yes, he, uh, he passed away last year, yeah, didn't he? Yeah. But he was a day a week, I think, at Bristol, and a day at Cardiff, and a day at Bath, and a day at Harrow, and somewhere else. And he came in like a dynamo, actually, you know, in his rough old van. <laughs> but, um, and he'd say, right, what do you want to do? And I'd say, Mo, I remember actually that bowl there under those blankets, yes. as a tiger bowl. I remember saying to him, I want to make a giant bowl. How do I do it? And he said, right, get a piece of wood this size, get a mountain of good conditioned clay this, you know, this much, you know, a big pile of it, and next week we'll just put the whole day aside and do it. And then the following week, he said, get anybody else who wants to watch. There were two or three others. And for the whole day, he just showed us. He sh- you know, and teaching by showing... And at the end of the day, we had this big mould and he, we talked about edges and he was constantly talking about whether you're trying to show the qualities of the clay or whether you're trying to show qualities of glazing. And really, if you look at his work, it's, it's so much about the raw way that clay behaves. At the same time, it's so much about the figure. It's so, it's so perfectly of past, present and future. He was just a great inspiration, mm. practically and spiritually. You know, he had a sort of big family, extended family of foster kids and this great community was very important to him. I think that probably had quite an influence as well. And he was a lot of fun. He was so wild and naughty and, you know, we'd have student parties, he'd always be there smoking and drinking. And he was, you know, and his family is gorgeous and still in touch with his children. But I wonder if I'd be making the same things, although my work is so different to his. He always whispers in my ear, you know, if that edge is going to be good, make it really good. If you're going to leave it, you know, so he's a great tutor. Yeah. But then at the Royal College, David Hamilton, three-year MA, 1983 to 86, he was just brilliant teacher in a different way. As he said... You've all, I was with Phil Eglin and Steve Dixon yes. and Rosa Quee. It's a very good circle. It yes. was eight students. All making in the quite era. different
0: work nowadays at least.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Well those I mean, Phil and Steve's work has this kind of political yes, it does. edge to yeah. it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And Palozzi was there at the Royal College right. as well. Right. Who influenced them, I think, a yeah. lot. And Janice Chalenko was teaching that Alice Alice and Britton was there. So again, just really lucky to you know how I think art education establishments have their moments. And it's like a sort of rolling curve, if you like, up and down, up and down. I think I was at Bristol at the right time with the most fabulous people, with all the materials we wanted at our fingertips without any extra charge. And then again at the Royal College, it was a great time. Phil Eglin was a great influence. Esperanza Romero, who was a year above. Chris Tipping. They were a really good group of students mm. who were very influential and great teachers. So really lucky, really lucky.
0: And when did your aesthetic, the, the kind of... Uh the gourds the pineapples the pumpkins when did that begin to develop at the royal college before the royal college no
1: i think well at the royal college david hamilton said to us right you've all got here and you're obviously quite good to have got here but actually you need to do what you're bad at here not what you're good at he was very adamant about that and so he set us all these projects that were completely against the grain actually i designed london underground stations and you know industrial things
0: when you say london you mean bits of architecture well they're actually real
1: projects to design holborn and south Kensington, actually and i came second in each one i was always getting second at these big projects where you had to present everything on paper which put me in very good stead for the work later on with architects and the public art actually at the time i felt it was so futile because i was always nearly there but not quite the one who was chosen But in in essence, um, no, I think it's my style started to develop after. Just in the last few months, I remember starting to make what I really wanted to make again because I wanted to use facilities at the Royal College, which was so great. It was right opposite the Albert Hall. You know, it was just in such an amazing place. I just suddenly stopped doing all the things, trying to do better at the things I was bad at and just started making again. So just in the last few months towards my degree show, I started making and then, into the free railway arches next to the festival hall. Well,
0: I was going to ask about that because that's that's it's that me London now. This yeah. is extraordinary that that you you leave the Royal College of Art yeah. and you get free space by the festival hall.
1: Yeah, in a railway arch which did have tramp's toilet on the front doorstep yeah. as you went in and there were pigeons and i actually got a deathly illness we never knew where it came from i got men the killer meningitis while i had the studio there we never know whether it was linked it was closed down while i got while i was ill but it essentially it was a free railway arch ken Livingstone was the lord mayor of london there were these empty rather derelict arches yeah that he had
0: days of GOC. these
1: canopies yes and he and and he said these craft makers should be there on display to the public So in the afternoons the public could come by and see what you were doing in exchange for having this free space. It was supposed to be for a year and a half and then you were supposed to leave. So it was a stepping stone really Mm. out of college. Run by Lisa G and Claire West. At the time, yes, who I met in their office under the stairs in the Railway Arches, who gave me a space before I'd even finished at the Royal College. I was so ready to start after seven years of education. I was chomping at the bit.
0: But I've read that you said it was it was that you didn't have much equipment, it was very cold, but it was a constraint that kind of taught you and shaped your work in some
1: ways so when you give yourself to the process so Mm. I was in this railway arch there was trains going over it wasn't the time of telephones anyway you didn't have a mobile phone but you couldn't have a landline because the trains were going over Hungerford Bridge rumbling the whole tunnel it was dark there were no windows there was bits of the tunnel falling onto the work so at night you had to sort of protect it with buckets and things but it was a space, and there was a, a kiln for everybody to use, so I hadn't didn't have to buy any equipment really. Um, and it was plumbed into the festival hall of electricity, so we didn't have an even an electricity bill. So I, I bought all my tiny tests from the Royal College that I'd been mixing glazes with with a friend, and I started painting them on the pots. and I developed this whole technique. I couldn't afford buckets of glaze. I couldn't afford a spray booth. so I had these tiny amounts of glaze and started painting them on by hand. And then if it went into the kiln, it didn't work because I wasn't paying the electricity. I put it back in instead of putting it in the bin. And so over that year and a half, 18, 20 months, I sort of developed this style that stuck with me to this day, actually. You know, since then, I had a spray booth in the studio, found I wasn't using it. I was still using my old technique. Those things set in those times are just sort of with you then, I think. And it's very, I don't like the idea of spraying glaze because it's poisonous. Because we live and work at home, mm. I'm very health and safety aware. We hoover and mop every day. We have amazing hoover filters and air filters. So I've always been aware of that. So it's a very convenient way of glazing by just directly putting it on with a brush. So I might have a pot with twenty different greens on it or twenty different blues and it's all evolved from that time through hardship actually.
0: Interesting. And so so the glaze came out of the, the South Bank. This is when the interest happened or were you were It already... did really. The
1: multiple firings did. You right. know. At the Royal College you couldn't because there were so many kiln bookings and yeah. so many students. So in a way it was the multiple firings and the layering of glazes that did it. I'm working in this dark railway arch with hardly any good light or anything, just working away, possibly because it was so dark. I was working by touch, and a lot of my p- pots are about touch these days. Very interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But uh, it was, yeah, fantastic, fantastic time. And there were shoemakers and felt makers. It wasn't just potters mm. in the whole complex. And you had we had free parking. We had a pass. So I got an a interest-free loan from the London Enterprise Agency... And I had a, a leather cap and a jeep. I bought a jeep. Everybody thought that <laughs> I was Mick Hucknall driving around in this jeep. And uh, they were great times. Yeah, very good.
0: There's an interesting kind of contradiction in your work, a little bit, I think, Kate. Where you talk a lot about the importance of intuition in what mm. you do, and you, you make set store by not thinking too much about mm. what it is you're doing. But by the same token, you have this extraordinary library of glazes, and you're incredibly organised. You have this book.
1: So how does that? How does that work? That's very interesting, isn't it? I am very organ. You know, I have about two or 3,000 glazes, and they're all catalogued. And really, I think I've probably had to be as organised as that because of the space constraints, constraints that I had. You know, there's no room for odd buckets of glaze lying around, really. Again, over time, one's surroundings evolve one's style. And so I suppose with everything in total order, like the glazes downstairs... You can then be free because you've got this great foundation of security to draw upon. So you, you don't just sort of think, oh, I don't know what I'm going to make and it sort of becomes a free, wild thing. There are all, all these sort of uh, security provisions underneath. You know, everything's yeah, very org- organised chaos in a way. Really. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it does. There's space here in London. You've got, you know, tiny spaces and you just have to be organised. Mm. Mm. Heaven knows what's going to happen now. I've got all this space in Kent. And when you were the,
0: on the South Bank, did you have a sense of where you wanted your career to go? Because it seems to me that there are at least three branches to, to what you do, mm. and you seem to want to reach out to as many sections of the public as you can, because on mm. one hand you're doing these batch pieces in your studio, mm. you obviously have the gallery-based work that mm. you do with Adrian, and also, as you've mentioned on a few occasions in this interview, the, the public art mm. stuff. I mean, I think particularly uh, when we met last was the Savile Row building that you did the, the tiles, which mm. isn't public art, but it's a mm. big architectural project. Did you have a sense that you wanted to do all those things?
1: Well, um, Graham and I had a dream that we would have in London a sort of a studio that would serve me and would serve other people and become like a little ceramic centre. So I think together we sort of had this dream. So in the railway arch... While we were in the railway arch, there was only 18 months, Graham and I found this derelict building, uh, which hadn't sold at auction in the 80s twice, with lots of land at the back. And so we bought that, borrowed money, and started renting out spaces on the building site as soon as we could, just to cover the loans and things. And so really, that evolved. So we had a big kiln that I could use, and I had a space. I actually paid the rent the same as everybody else. It was run very much as a co-op. And through the recession, the Maggie Thatcher recession, when interest rates doubled from 7 to 14%, mm. we actually had to put twice as many people in the building. So it was this big, sort of beautiful, tiny building, but full of people and potters working. It's very business minded. It is. I always have been. You know, my mum was a car dealer and we had to help (laughs) her sell cars. You know, I always have been really business minded, not money minded Mm. in as much as all I know is that I want to make enough money to keep going and to spread and to learn and to help other people. That's it's not about sort of hoarding riches or anything. But um, back to the question it was about, did I know? Yeah. Well, really, I always wanted to make big things. So it seemed logical to place big things in public spaces. I always wanted to serve a community. So by making fancy pots that are very expensive, you're not really serving the general public community. And so I felt that that was very appropriate. Um, When I got, I mentioned very briefly I had meningitis when I was in the railway arches in 87 or 8 or something like that, 9. And um, I was in hospital, in Homerton Hospital here. And uh, evidently I was sort of in this coma, but when the doctor, the sort of the main doctor came and said what did I do evidently I sat up and said I'm a potter and I sort of pointed at this courtyard outside my building and said I could do you a fountain in this courtyard and then I sort of flopped back down and passed out again <laughs> and then he was so impressed by this that he actually asked me to make a commission for Homerton Hospital when I got better
0: that's the way to get a commission obviously get meningitis <laughs>
1: <laughs> but the fact was it was it felt so good putting art in a hospital especially where I'd been ill but actually they had the Homerton had a great partnership with the Whitechapel Art Gallery and the VNA and they had lovely art in Hackney in this rough hospital down the corridors and as I was recovering I saw and benefited from the art in the corridors so that really strengthened my thing so really doing things for schools libraries parks hospitals museums has been my bag because mm. it's so much job satisfaction it's so brilliant
0: but presumably you know in that particular public art pond or if you're working with architects there are a lot of ores in there it's a terrible illusion i'm sorry yeah but you have to deal with an awful lot of people yeah. clients yeah. architects yeah. Which i is mean lovely. as an artist is that lovely i like is that, that lovely? yeah
1: yeah i like that you know helen and i who was my workshop manager for the savile row project for to do the facade with 11 tons of play, 11,000 crystalline glazed tiles. We would be in these meetings, you know, overlooking the Thames of these giant glass business tables, everybody in suits and Helen and I would be there. And it would just be fascinating to get to know these people. Often difficult. You know, I always say, I've just handed on a little public art project to two of my assistants have taken it on and they come back and go, Oh my God, I understand what you mean. Cause it's 5% inspiration and 95% solid, hard graft mm. So problem solving. Actually, mm. you know, I'm so respect architects when it, cause you have an idea for a building, but then it has to be done. And it's one series of catastrophes really after another to get these buildings made. Um, so it's really high learning curve and I love new things and new people. So I'm, I'm, godmother to one of the architect's kids now you know it's but you know, so really it's all about communities
0: and presumably it hooks back into the projects you were doing at the the royal college yes
1: it does yeah. really you know when i go through holborn station and see the very good one that those pillars, i think jesus mine would have been better than that <laughs> 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 and south kensington i thought i'd cracked it but it was yeah lovely lovely time i mean the royal college was very formative in that respect and three years you yeah. had a year to yeah, get yeah. to know it and get to know the department, then a year to play, and then a year to pull it together. I'm very sad now that it's so shortened and so tight and so many more. I mean, it was again, as I said, I was so jammy, really, to go through education at that time.
0: Mm. One name that's cropped up uh, a lot in the last half hour is your your gallerist, mm. Adrian Sassoon. Um, can we talk about how that relation started and what he's brought to your career and work?
1: Mm. Um, I had a letter. Um, I was constantly trying to show my pots, you know, as a new maker. I went to Contemporary Applied Arts and said, can I have a show? And they said, no, we don't know who you are. You know, obviously there's that starting out, isn't there? And so I was constantly showing everywhere. And Adrian Sassoon, who deals, uh, who's an expert on antique Sevres really, on the whole, and that's his primary starting point, uh, was taught by Gordon Baldwin at Eton. Mm and loved Gordon Baldwin's work and had some of his work in his home. And as people came to buy the serve or to see his serve that he was selling to the, to the sort of um, great collectors of the world, they'd pass the Gordon Baldwin and see it and ask what it was. And he realised that there was something, you know, some interest, I think, in new work. So I think he asked um, Contemporary Applied Arts for a list of 10 people or some people who they thought might be good for him. And he wrote me a letter, and I've still got the letter, not because I thought it was so precious at the time, just because I stuffed it in my filing cabinet and found it, you know, a few years ago, saying, I'd like to show your work, you know, would you be interested? And I remember saying to my husband, Rutland Gate's quite a good address, isn't it? That's a very good place. (laughs) (laughs) Should I follow this letter up? And he said, yes, I think you should. And then I started, I met Adrian and really liked him straight away. He's two years my junior, and uh, he always seemed so... So full of knowledge, and that that was the historical knowledge that was so fabulous. And he started showing my work, and it became very evident that he just really wanted the best of my work. And so we sort of naturally, again, evolved into being exclusive. So I only show with him anything over £350 is done through Adrian. And um, essentially, he's just given me this amazing... He sold well from the start, Mm. And things were all right, but I was teaching and I was doing this and I was doing public art and trying to balance everything financially. But he started selling very well from the start. And he, you know, very soon said, you know, just move forward, do what you want, do what's in you. Don't worry about how long it might take or how much it might cost because we'll deal with it. And a couple of times right at the start, you know, when I was out of money, I'd say to him, you know, would you like to buy? He bought work. Before, you know, now, nowadays he takes work and then sells it and I get paid. But essentially at the start, he'd buy batches of work. And so he had this amazing confidence in buying it, which gave me a confidence. Mm. So I think apart from it being really a great financial uh, exchange, you know, Adrian sells uh, to, in places I never could have dreamt of to people I could never have dreamed of reaching. At the same time, he just gave me this confidence by buying it in the first place. And I just sort of had this confidence, which my husband also gave me by building the studios and so that I could work. And so really, Graham and Adrian have been hugely influential in the quantity and the quality of work that I made. I think if it had failed in the sort of expensive decorative studio ceramics department, I'd have sort of moved to the country and made bowls. I don't know. Or had lots more children. I don't know. But essentially, they've been huge. I mean, everything's... We're all influenced by the people we meet, aren't we? And mm. the people. And I particularly get on with Adrian and we trust each other. And his team are just fabulous to work with. He treats us all... Ah, that's an interesting point, actually. He treats his team so well and his artists so well, you know, in that he, if we've got... To, he'll fly us to places and, you know, make sure we eat very well and we're in nice hotels and looks after us. That I actually do the same to my team. You know, his influence, you know, His know, dis- I realized it this year because I took the whole team to India. Well, not mm. the whole team, but a group of eight people to India last year to the Indian Ceramics Triennale. And we all stayed in really nice places. And it was all, you know, it was a research trip. So my business, I have a limited company that I had to set up because of the several road job. And so it's all sort of paid for by the business in effect. But his treatment of us filters right down to my treatment of my team. Mm. And then I hope to the people around because when you meet somebody who has integrity and is very good, I think that's the idea that it sort of follows on. And mm. that's the example that I'd like to set to my team to do the same, you know, along the line. So, yeah, it's great. Thank God I met him. That's all <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we're coming to the end of our time, but I can't not ask about the Great Pottery
1: Throwdown.
0: <laughs> what was it like being on telly?
1: Was In a it hit like show, a telling? hit show. Well, you did, we didn't know whether it was going to be a hit show or not. We didn't know if it was going to be awful. But, the, you know, all the signs were quite good because the Bake Off, the same company... Uh, it, it's a kind, It's a kind kind production company. They're kind to people. They're not cruel like these awful, some of these awful TV shows. So that I was very, very adamant that it had to be a kind show. And what was it like? Well, I come from, a bit from a TV family. My brother was a TV producer, so I sort of saw them doing it. So I kind of sort of had a... Uh, thing I did um, it was really hard early mornings makeup hairdos not my style at all Uh, that was really hard and challenging and actually to sort of I think probably my character was quite suppressed in the first series I got a bit better in the second series hopefully we'll do a third series and I'll be a bit more free
0: you didn't cry enough
1: no, I didn't. And I didn't know Keith or Sarah. Right. We were, the first day one, you know, we were put together and we, we didn't know each other. And obviously now we, we're more familiar with each other. And Keith's a very good man, very good objectives. You know, he's a very great man. So I think hopefully if we do Series 3, it'll get stronger. But the key is, because I think a lot of Potters were quite anti it. You know, they thought, Potter is theirs and it's going to produce a lot of average work. And, you know... But essentially, it was like getting into three and a half million people's sitting rooms. And it was kids. They, re- they re-showed it on a Saturday evening. And I remember sitting down and watching the Generation Game or the Forsyth Saga with my parents mm. and family. And the- I have had families come up to me and say, we'd sit down in front of it.
0: Well, in a curious kind of way, the Generation Game was <laughs> in and of itself based around craft, yeah, right? At least yeah. trying to learn a yes, skill. it very, was actually, very, yeah. Albeit very quickly.
1: yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. Yes, it was. There were all these influences, early influences. I could go on for ages about the singing Ringing Tree, this amazing fantasy yes. kids thing, but I won't. <laughs> but the TV, um, what a great thing it was. And let's hope it carries on. Cause well, I was,
0: was going to ask, because there are, there have been rumours yes, of another noises, series. Obviously, there was yes, a petition the last when, to when hear, it got really.
1: Yeah, there was a petition which was quite anti-BBC, so it wasn't really that effective a, a petition. But... In effect, yeah, people loved it. And it was and of course they loved it because you show the joys of clay. I mean clay is so joyous. When they made the toilet and when they made the porcelain lamps and things, it just shows the versatility of clay, which is why I do it. I'd love an architect to come to me and ask me to do lamps, for instance. And that's the sort of joy of working across I say my price range is from £25 to £1.5 million. (laughs) That's the project that I've worked on. and That's that's really interesting
0: because when people get into the kind of gallery realm, Mm. they tend to not do the cheap Mm. or less expensive Mm. part of the market, should we say. And the fact that you've kept doing that.
1: Well, it's so important to serve as many people as possible, Mm. isn't it? And a cup, my cup is a bone china cup that's made in Stoke-on-Trent that I design the decals for, and I give them away or sell them or what have you. But you kiss a cup every day. When you, when you, when you use a cup, you're kissing, you're putting it to your lips. So it's a very intimate thing, you know, and, and it's about all my pots. The, hopefully the objective is a, a message of symbolistic optimism. And so that the the roll tops roll outwards and they offer the insides out. So it's really about communicating. And, and it happens to be that it's through clay, really. You know, that's the thing.
0: Kate, that's a lovely, lovely place to finish. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. How interesting it's been to our chatting.
0: To learn more about Kate's work, go to katemaloneseramics.com. There are images of the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. And finally, if you want to sponsor an episode or indeed an entire series, do drop me a line on gdgibson at btinternet.com.